Well, good morning, Harmony. Everybody have a good week? Sounds okay. Uh, We are in our second week of a series uh, that we're calling Raise the Bar. And just to kind of reset your expectations of this, my challenge to you all as we talk about this is, is that you and I think about what is our expectation when it comes to our relationship with God Almighty and about how we're pursuing that every day of our lives. So many Christians that I meet have lowered the bar so dramatically low on what they expect from the relationship from God and not only what they expect from it, but what they hope to get out of it. And and this sounds flippant, but I'm just being very honest with you. I think many Christians treat the relationship with Jesus Christ no different than insurance. They have done the bare minimum to get what in their mind is coverage so that in case something terrible like death occurs, they have peace to know that they're going to go to the good place, not the bad place. And I'll be honest with you, I think a lot of us have come to a place where if we've walked the aisle, if we've got dunked in the tank, if we've said that prayer, if we come to church occasionally, we go, I'm a good person. I'm good. And even when we're brought up to those moments in life where either our own character or somebody outside shows us that maybe there's something that's inconsistent, maybe that there's something we can improve or get better on, we still tend to justify why that's there. You know, that's just who I am. You know, that's just, that's just the way of the world. And we accept this low bar of behavior, a low bar of expectation of what we get from our relationship from God, and a low expectation of what it means to be part of this family. And what I want us to do as we go through this this story is I want us to ask ourselves, how do we aim higher? How do we aim for more? Now, I caution you that what I'm not asking you to be is perfect because God's word is very clear. You and I will never reach that. God's word is very clear in the New Testament that if we are ever to say that we are without sin, then we don't know Jesus Christ. Right? The point of the law and the point of being in an intimate relationship with a perfect God is if you really spend every single day of your life intimately with God, there's one thing you will know besides that he's awesome, and that is that you're not. That will be painfully present to you because you will just see this vast gulf between his love, his brilliance, his patience, his wisdom, and then where you're at. But that doesn't mean that each and every day you and I shouldn't be striving, pushing, trying to give everything we have and everything we've got for the purposes of the kingdom. And so as we go through this story, the story of Joseph, I want us to look at an individual who in the Bible stands out a lot from other people because a lot of the other biblical heroes, there's huge character flaws. There's these huge character flaws that you see. And when we read those stories, it's beautiful because it reminds us that does God only use perfect things? No. God regularly goes to the heap scraps picks up something that nobody else wants and goes, I'm going to use this to do something awesome. And then he does. 
And when he does that, what's beautiful is everybody knows God's awesome. This guy took something that was broken, something that was discarded, something that nobody put value in. He has cleaned it off. He has made it good. And he did amazing work with it. How awesome. Yet I think sometimes we read those stories and that justifies you to me being that broken. And going, well, it's okay. God will still use me. Yeah, he will. But are you giving it everything you've got? I'll give you one of the examples that always kind of hurts my heart. The Great Commission is in many ways Jesus' last request to us. Right? After all this time with his disciples, three years, day and night with him, teaching, preaching, training, after him going to the cross, after him defeating death, after him spending time and creating miracles, in his last moments with them, he goes to him and says, you, go into all the nations and baptize them in my name. Teach them the gospel. Make disciples. And what's crazy to me is I run into so many modern Christians who are terrified and will admit are terrible at sharing the gospel. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not saying that at some point in our lives that it would make sense that that's true for us, right? Any of us, when we start something new, we're normally kind of bad at it. Most of us, when we start something new, we're, we're kind of fearful about it because we realize we're not experienced. We realize we're not good at it. But then you know what happens? You practice, and you train, and you work, and you make mistakes, and you learn from them, and you get better. And then you know what starts to happen is one day you wake up and you go, I'm not fantastic, but I'm pretty good at this. And then you keep training, and you keep studying, and you keep reading, and you keep talking, and you keep doing things. And then one day you wake up and you go, I'm not awesome, but I'm pretty good at this. I don't know why it is that when I come to church, I so often run to people who will go, oh, I've been in this place for 20 years. I've been a Christian most of my life. And then you ask them about sharing their faith, and they go, oh, no, I'm no good at that. This would be like going to any company. Like, imagine going to McDonald's and running to an employee who's worked there for 25 years, and you ask them to put a cheeseburger together, and they go, oh, I'm terrible at that. I don't know how to do that. You'd go like, well, what do you do? You've worked at McDonald's for 25 years and you can't put a cheeseburger together? It's a little bit how it should feel if you run into a Christian who's been one for 25 years and you ask him about sharing the gospel and they go, no, can't do that. It should be weird to us. It should be strange to us. And again, not to say that all of us are perfect, but every one of us should be striving to be good at certain things. And so my urge to you is, let's look at these stories, let's look at who our God is, and let's ask, have we really asked ourselves to give everything we've got to this? Or have we, not the world, not God, have we set the bar too low? Have we been the ones limiting what we can achieve in our relationship with God? So last week we started. We started with going through Genesis, and we're going through the story of Joseph. And so last week we were in chapter 37. This week, go ahead and open up your Bibles. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 39. 
While you're getting to Genesis 39, let me remind you of what we've come through. And it's important for us to remember where we've come through because as we look at this story of this young man's life, we have to realize that the first and foremost thing for us is what was God saying to this young man in this situation? And so where we were last week is we're introduced to Joseph and we run into a young boy who is the favorite of his family. His father adores him. His father loves him. He's dressed in wealthy clothes. He lives in a pretty nice place. It's apparent that his father has wealth and power. He's protected. But because of this this strife between the brothers, because so much favoritism is heaped upon Joseph, the other brothers hate him. Hate him to the point that they want to murder him. And what they finally settle upon is since he's flesh and blood, let's not murder him, but we're going to sell him, we're going to tell daddy's dead, and we'll be done with this guy for the rest of our lives. And so where I want you to kind of put yourself mentally is imagine being this young boy. You're an Israelite who wakes up now in Egypt. You don't know the language, you don't know the culture, you don't know the people. The Egyptians are unbelievably racist. In the Egyptian language, there was no word for people that weren't Egyptian. If you weren't Egyptian, you were not human to them. You were below that. So strange land, strange people, they don't like him. He's by himself, he's a slave. The one thing he holds to, his God has no respect, has no prominence in this land. None of the behaviors match. This is like me taking you from here and putting you all the way across the world in a totally different place. That's where this young man is. And to add insult to it, it wasn't his enemies who did this to him. It was his brothers. Now, I'll be honest, I've known people who have a lot less going against them who've given up. If you would tell them that was their situation, they'd just give up. But we're going to see in Genesis 39, that is not the story of Joseph. In Genesis chapter 39, verse 1, it says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, brought him from the Ishmaelites, who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and so he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him. And how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned was put in his charge. It came from that time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, and the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned, in the house and in the field. And so he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him, there he did not concern himself with anything except the food with which he ate. So, short passage, but a lot happening. What we see is Joseph is bought by this man Potiphar, and Potiphar is not just any Egyptian. He's a person of prominence. He's in charge over Pharaoh's bodyguards. So this means in this community, not only is he wealthy, and not only would he have had a large estate, 
but he has a personal and respected relationship with Pharaoh, who in Egyptian culture isn't just a man, he is God. This is a special place that Joseph has ended up. And what we see about Joseph is, while it's not implicitly said, this is not a man who has given up. Joseph is put in Potiphar's charge, and what immediately happens? He begins to work, and he begins to work well. So well that Potiphar starts to realize everything this guy touches turns to gold. And so over a span of time, we're not sure how many times, but probably over a few years, Joseph rises up from this young foreign man who didn't know the language, didn't know the customs, to now has risen up to the point of such respect while still a slave. The Potiphar goes, I don't concern myself with anything at my house except what I eat. The management of my other slaves, the management of my household, the management of my finances, the management of my security, everything is in Joseph's hands. Because whatever Joseph touches is blessed. Now, there's something that's very important here, and and it's important because it's Potiphar who notices this. Notice when Joseph's success is brought up, where is the credit given? Right? When, when Potiphar looks at Joseph and realizes that he's good at stuff, no one puts the success on Joseph's shoulders. Right Now his master, look at verse 3, 39-3. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in the land. This is going to become a trend that we will see with Joseph. Anybody who works with him, anybody who interacts with him, realizes, yes, he's successful. But what you never hear from them is, Joseph's brilliant. What you always hear from them is, Joseph's Lord is with him and blesses him. And so I want to pause real quick and talk about Potiphar. Because I think in many ways, Potiphar represents what you see a lot in modern Christianity. Potiphar is someone that loves God's stuff, but not God. And I'll be real with you, I think that is a lot of especially America's Christians. They are people who have come to God not for who God is, but for what God has and what God can do. Potiphar doesn't know who Yahweh is. Nowhere here do we see that Potiphar begins to worship Yahweh. Nowhere here do we see that he begins to develop his customs. Nowhere here we see that there's any kind of personal relationship between Potiphar and Yahweh God. But what do we see? Potiphar goes, hey, this guy? Whatever he's doing is working. So I like that. I like that whatever he's doing is working, so I'm going to give him more. Because I want success. I want good. I want what the world says is right, and if this guy can get me to what the world says is valuable, awesome. I'll be real with you. I think that's the motive of a lot of Christians. And also be real with you, I think the churches are a lot to blame for that. Just pay attention when you're driving around town to some of the marketing that you see from churches. If you go to a Christian bookstore, just pay attention to some of the titles of the books Almost all of them are about you. They're about your finances. They're about your marriage. They're about raising your children. They're about dealing with your work. They're about you, 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 you. And how 
this character God can help you. Right? One of the most popular Christian books of the last decade has been about having your best life now. And we eat up this idea of, I can use God to get what I want. That's exactly what we see Potiphar doing. I'm pretty sure if Potiphar had seen Joseph be just as devout to his God, Yahweh, but not be successful, that Joseph would not have risen to prominence in his household. He may have respected his faith, but there would have been nothing to make him make him a powerful person. And so the first question I have for you to think about with your own relationship with God is, why are you here? Have you come to God for him to fix a problem in your life, or have you come to God because you want God? Right? If you knew right now that God would never grant another one of your prayers again, that he would never heal another sick person in your family, he would never bless you with another dollar, he would never make one of your wishes come true, all you would get from him is him. Would you go, that's enough? I've used this quote many times before, but one of my favorites, A.W. Tozer, he says, if God were to never grant another one of my wishes, I would have more than enough to praise him from here to eternity. His point is, I don't need another thing from God. I have God. You remember the, the, the parable of the, uh, of the prodigal son? Right? The prodigal son goes on this wayward journey, and his whole thing's about God redeeming him, God forgiving him. But there's another son in that story. It's the son that stayed the whole time. And what we learn at the end of that story is that son actually has just to corrupt his heart. When he sees the party for his brother who's come back, he is angry, he's infuriated, he's mad. Why? Why does this jerk get a party? I've been here this whole time. I want a party. And his father goes, son, you have been with me every day. All you wondered was my calf? You've had me. You've had what's better. And so I think the question for each of us is, is are we here because we're hoping God has some magic cure to some ailment in our life? Are we here for him? Because when we read this book, we see the most amazing being in all the world. We see so much love and so much wisdom and so much compassion and so much strength. And we see someone that not only will be that comforting soft shoulder to lean on in the darkest moments of life. But we also see that one who will grab us by the scruff of the neck and go, you can do better. You can do more. I built you for greatness. Go. Do we see that and encounter that and go, I have to be where he is. I really don't care about what I got. I don't really care about how anybody else sees me. Where he is, I got to be there. That's where I got to go. That's what Christianity is. It's a relationship. It's not you having some awesome consultant or a genie in the bottle. Do you want to know what that's called? That's called paganism. All pagan cultures taught that there was this blackmail exchange between God and man. God has power, man doesn't. So you want me to do stuff for you? Well, then you got to do stuff for me. 
And there was this weird exchange of, I'll do these rituals, I'll give you money, I'll serve for you, I'll kill for you, I'll do what you need, but only if you pay me back. That's not love. That's not a loving relationship. God warns us about this. He says to us, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Do you remember when he says that? He's just fed the 5,000. It's 5,000 men. It's probably about fifteen to 20,000 people. And the next day, all those people flock back to him. And I've always loved this story because modern pastors, we'd be like, victory! 20,000 people just showed up to fill up my church to hear me preach. Let's keep feeding them. Jesus sees them and goes, uh-uh. You did not show up today to hear the word of God. You didn't show up today to have build the kingdom. You didn't show up today to understand who my father is. You showed up today because yesterday I gave you fish and bread. And all you want from me today is more fish and bread. No. You are chasing the wrong thing. Because you know the problem with the world and its bread? The world and its bread will just always buy you a little bit of time. Yeah, it'll fill you up for a little bit, but guess what happens in a couple hours? You need more, and then you need more, and then you need more, and then you need more. You guys ever drive around this town and just get shocked by man's ability to consume? How many stores do we need? How many restaurants? How many shopping centers? How many of these things till we're appeased? And you know what the answer is? Infinite. There will never be a mall built where we'll all show up and go, you know what? I don't think they ever need to build another mall again. That's the only mall we'll ever need. We'll want more and more and more. Jesus is saying, stop filling yourself up on the junk and fill yourself up on what you were built to run off, which is him. And get that, brothers and sisters. This isn't some weird coincidence. You were designed by God and built by God to run off a relationship with him. So anytime you try to fill that with something else, it's not going to work. It always reminds me of these guys I see who try to turn their trucks into sports cars. And I always feel bad for them because they'll put thousands of dollars into trying to make their truck fast. And they could have just gone and bought a fast car and it would beat their truck. Why? Because the sports car was designed to be fast, and the truck wasn't. So you can do everything you want to it, but at the end of the day, normally the sports car is faster. There's a show I like on Netflix where they, they go, it's, I think it's called like Fast Car, and they'll show all these guys who modify their vehicles for hours and hours. They've got all these different parts in it. Like You don't even know what car it is anymore. Because it's like six cars, Frankenstein together. And then some rich guy will show up with a Lamborghini and just destroy them. <laughs> and they're looking at this guy going, he doesn't even know anything about cars. He didn't build this. He didn't shape it. He didn't do anything to it. It's like, I know, but he bought a supercar. So 
It's super. It's what it does. You were not built to run off what the world's feeding you. You were built to run off a relationship with him. Look what he says to us in 1 John 2.16. He says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And so what I want you to see here is Potiphar represents that. He's willing to tolerate the faith of Joseph, and he's even willing to promote it in some ways. Why? Because it blesses him materially. I pray that's not your relationship with God. I pray instead what we see is what we see in Joseph. Joseph shows God in everything he does. Just reflects the man. And, and how do we know that? I have to infer a little bit because it's not explicitly said in Scripture. Right? It doesn't tell us this is Joseph's daily routine. It doesn't walk us through that. But what's unusual is, is we know he's in a place where no one knows Yahweh God. We know no one has a relationship or understanding of him. Yet what does everybody know about Joseph? His Lord is Yahweh, and all of his success is due to Yahweh. That means that in everything this guy is doing, in the way he talks, in the way he acts, in the way he behaves, in all of his daily activities, what does everybody realize? God is part of this man's life. And it's not just inferred, it's implicit. And that's a key difference. That's a key difference. I, I had a buddy in high school who was very devout in his faith, but how he internalized it is he made his faith about doing the right things. And so what I'd find with him is sometimes like we go to a party and maybe a few minutes into being at the party, we'd realize it wasn't the kind of party we should have been at. And when we were invited to participate in things, he would always say no but never for the reason, really, he was saying no. If someone offered him a drink, he would say, ah, oh, I'd love to, but I got a big test tomorrow, so I got to stay sharp. If someone offered him something physical, he'd say, oh, no, I got a girl, I, you know, I'm committed. Those were all lies. And his view was, well, I'm not doing the wrong thing. I'm staying away from the wrong thing. But did anybody ever realize that the reason he was doing that was because of his relationship with God? No. People might have looked at him and said, oh, that's a good guy, he never does the wrong thing. But you know what they would have never said? Oh, that guy's relationship with God defines him. Because he never put it forward. I want you to flip a little bit with me because, well, we don't get a lot of details from Joseph. We do get a lot of details in other places in the Bible that show us what does it look like when you make it explicit to people that you belong to God and that everything you do and everything you are is not about you, it's about Him. Flip in your Bible to Daniel chapter 1. In Daniel chapter 1, we actually encounter a very similar situation. We encounter a young man who has basically been taken behind enemy lines. He is somebody who 
is now in a culture that does not embrace what he believes in, does not teach what he knows to be right, and does not honor God. But he has decided that he will stand by his father. And so in Daniel chapter 1, we encounter Daniel, this Jewish boy, being taken to an Assyrian place, and he's being forced to adopt their cultures. And look what happens. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or the wine which he drank. And so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are also your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat water and to drink. Then let our appearances be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food. And deal with your servants according to what you see. Do you see what happens here? We don't know the details of the menu, but here's what we know. What Daniel was asked to eat, which was the same food the king of Assyria ate, Daniel looked at that and said, no, this would be against what God has asked. I can't do that. I can't do that. And what I always love about this is this is one of those things where I tell you our vision's so bad. I think the worst thing human beings are capable of is measuring the significance of moments in their lives. I think there are many times where we think something's a small moment. It's not. And we think there's a large moment. It's not. The reality of most life is, is that's the little things stacked up together that really end up defining who you are. Think how easy it would have been for Daniel to justify eating this food. I've been ripped out of my homeland. I've seen my brothers and sisters slaughtered by these people. I am now in this king's court, and if I don't obey him, not only would he kill me, but the official told him, if this doesn't work, he'll kill me too. Other people's lives are on the line. Just eat the food, Daniel. Just eat the food, pray to God, say you're sorry, but he'll understand, right? He'll get it. Your life's on the line. Daniel goes, no. I am planting my feet and I'm not moving. I would rather die than defile him, even on what you think is small. We stand with him all things. Later in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, flip forward a little bit. In chapter 2, 27, the king is having a dream and nobody knows what this dream means. Nobody knows what's happening, but Daniel is this trusted advisor and Daniel knows. But look at what Daniel says in 27. Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This is your dream, and the visions in your mind while on your bed. You see what Daniel does there? 
Everybody in the land is trying to solve the king's problem of what does this dream mean? And Daniel could have walked in there and go, I know. Superman is here. Let me save the day. Let me tell you what this dream is. But does Daniel want to take a second of the credit? No. He goes, God knows the answer to your dream. God's revealed that answer to me, and I'm going to share it with you. But the glory is to God. Again, do you see? This is a little thing. Right? How, would it really have seemed that different in the moment? Like, let's be honest. Let's say this didn't happen. Let's say we're reading this story and we go, God revealed to Daniel the dream. Daniel walks into the throne room and tells Nebuchadnezzar, would any of us have read that story and gone, that Daniel's shady? No, I think we would all read it and gone, yeah, perfect. God revealed it to him. Daniel used it. That's exactly what God wanted. But just that little bit of intention to make it clear this isn't about my wisdom. It's not about my knowledge. It's not about my ability. This is about God. It changes everything. And again, this is the second time we see something that in and of itself seems small, but we start to see it's not small. This is defining the character of Daniel. This is starting to build a narrative of who he is, what does he stand for, and what does he do. And guess who's reading that narrative? And these little things, they don't stay little, they turn big. Look what happens later in Daniel chapter 3. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 16 through 18, we run into the famous story of those Jewish people with their new Assyrian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, being thrown into the flames. Why? Because they refuse to stop praying to their God. They will not honor anyone other than their God. And look at what they say in verse 16. It's one of the most beautiful prayers. It's one of the most beautiful statements of faith that I think is in the entire Bible. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I love that. To boldly stand before someone who holds your lives in your hands and go, guess what? One, I without a doubt know that my God can save me from what you have planned. But even if he doesn't, I will never betray him. That's a servant. I have laid myself in my father's hands, and however he wants to use me, I'm good with it. If he wants to use this moment to strike down from heaven, to deliver us, and to proclaim his power to all those witnessing, awesome. And if he wants me to sacrifice myself for him, then I will. Then I will. Later in the book, in Daniel chapter 6, we see another instance of this. The same task being thrown at these men. Again, the pressure to pray to a God other than Yahweh. 
In Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, after Daniel realizes a law has been made that you can only pray to the king, it says this. It says, Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel, making petition and supplication before, their, before God. And then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, The statement is true, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Brothers and sisters, what I want you to see is, well, these aren't the actions of Joseph. These are the actions of people that let the world around them know, I belong to God. We don't have the details to know exactly what Joseph was doing every single day, but I imagine it's things just like this. Because what's clear to Joseph in this moment, what's clear to all those who watch him, is that this man belongs to God, and anything he does is the result of God's work. Is that true of your life? Is it true of mine? Would our coworkers, would our employees, would our friends, would our family realize that when you talk to me, you don't just talk to me, you talk to a servant of God? And when they realize that all the things that we've achieved in our lives that we'd like to put our name next to, you can't put my name next to it. It's God picking up a broken tool and doing amazing work. Would they get that? Would they see that? I was talking to somebody this week about this passage. And they asked me an interesting question. They said, but is Joseph's character always like this with God because he's always succeeding? I mean, the Bible tells us, right? Everything he touches, he succeeds at. And I said, good point, but remember context. In the eyes of the world, from chapter 37 to chapter 39, has Joseph's life been on a positive incline? I mean, in chapter 37, he's the favorite son of a rich man who's very powerful. He has a great job. He has great clothes. He has a powerful family. He has everything you could hope for. In chapter 39, while we still see success comes at the work of his hands, let's remember this is a slave in a foreign land whose life hangs in the balance every day of his life. Again, what I want you to see with him is, well, the circumstances of his life are this roller coaster with ups and downs. The spirit of Joseph is always just rising more and more closer to his God. That's what we want. You can't control your boss. You can't control the weather. You can't control the economy. You can't control your job. You can't control a millions of factors in your life every day. But you can control where your spirit goes, where it runs to. What Joseph shows us is even when the world throws everything it's got at us, 
we can look at that world and go, bring it. I will pursue my Father. I will be by my Father's side and I will give glory to my Father. And you can't stop me. You can take my health. You can take my wealth. You can even take my life. But you can't touch what matters most. You can't touch my soul. And that, brothers and sisters, is why I mean by raising the bar. It's not that I expect to walk into this church in 18 months and the parking lot to be filled with Ferraris and Lamborghinis. It's not that I expect to walk into this church and have it look like it's New York Fashion Week and we're full of models. It's that I expect this to be a place where whatever the world throws at us, cancer, job loss, devastation in our personal relationships, whatever it may be, that this is a church that just keeps rising every day closer to God, every day more in his presence, and every day living in such a way that, as the word says, everybody knows what matters to us. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify who? Not you. Your Father who is in heaven. Let that be the testimony of our lives. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and we are just so blessed to be your children. That we get to call you Father. What a gift. That you have washed us with the blood of your son Jesus and taken away all that sin, Lord. That you've clothed us in his righteousness so that we now are royalty in your kingdom. That we, Father, feeble and childish as we are, your servants, that get to do your work and build your kingdom. What a gift, Father. I pray this week, Lord, that no matter what this world throws at us, that we will not forget where our steps lead and that every step, whether big or small, will be a step closer into your presence and into your holiness. Father, I pray this week that when people see our deeds and hear our words, they will glorify you. We love you, we serve you, and we are yours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As Maria comes up to lead us in our closing song, uh, I'll be down here at the front. Uh, if there's anything just on your heart that you want to know somebody else is praying about, uh, we'll have some of our deacons in the back with Brother James. So if there, again, you want someone to pray with you, feel free to do that. And as always, if you don't feel comfortable coming up during service, please seek us out after. Give us a call, text us, whatever. We are here to talk with you and to help you along your journey throughout this world. Let us stand.
And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. How blessed we are. It's always such a wonderful pleasure to be in this house with you, uh, to worship our God with you. I remind you of two things, same two things every week. You've been given a spirit of power, of love, and self-discipline. That means you are a powerful person. And you've been given a mission, which is to go outside those doors and to make disciples that love God, love people, and follow Jesus. Get to it. Have a great week. I love you, and we'll see you next week.